politics. Two topics many people feel should never go together. But Christ called us to not only be citizens of heaven, but good citizens of the nation we currently live in. How should Christians engage in the political process? What about the idea of separation of church and state? How is it being misused today? And what did our founding fathers mean by that phrase? Can Christians and churches engage in politics? And if so, how? You're listening to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucrin. Pat is an author, scholar, and teacher in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today, we're going to listen to Pat's guest, Kirby Anderson of Probe Ministries, who recently presented a message entitled Election 2012 at our 2012 Hawaii Apologetics Conference. This insightful presentation, along with the entire series of messages from Pat and his guests, can be purchased at evidenceandanswers.org. Let's join Kirby Anderson now as he presents part two of this study in entitled Election 2012. In a biblical view of government, I could reject all sorts of political theories because a lot of political theories are based upon the idea that, well, we had to institute government to keep us from killing each other because the world is nasty and brutish. But really, the scriptures tell us, no, the reason we have government is because God has ordained government. It is a God-ordained institution. And I'll come back to that in just a minute. But it also says that we are to render to all what is due to them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. And so the very first thing we can say is, is that as Christians, we have a responsibility to obey those in government. It's not optional. We are to obey government because after all, it is divinely ordained. Now, is there ever a time when we would disobey government? Yes, I'll come back to that in just a few minutes, but I think when there's a direct and specific command that is given to you, which if obeyed would cause you to disobey God, then we have to exercise civil disobedience. But in most cases, we have an opportunity to bring about a change, and so thus, I think the primary emphasis in Scripture is that we obey those in government. Another thing we can learn is as Paul is writing to Timothy, some of his last instructions to Timothy, He gives him some initial statements in the first chapter, but then as he begins what we call today our second chapter, he says, first of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. And so I think another implication is not only should we obey those in authority, but we should also pray for those in authority. If you're going to be an obedient Christian, we should not only obey those in authority, but pray for our, what I say, our key 16. Who are those? Well, you have certainly the president is in authority over you. You have nine members of the Supreme Court, so that makes 10. You have two senators, you have a representative, a governor, a state senator, a state representative. There's at least 16 individuals who in the political realm are in authority over you and you should be praying for those individuals. How many Christians pray for those in authority? I've conducted enough political gatherings and seminars where I'll go into the audience, and I won't do this today with a microphone, and ask you, who is your state representative? Who's your state representative? I'm lucky sometimes if I can get somebody to know who their two United States senators are, but when we get down to the state legislature, we find that sometimes less than 10% of a even politically astute audience can tell tells me where you're not praying for those individuals. 
I won't go into the audience and ask you to name the nine members of the Supreme Court, but those people govern your lives in very significant ways. And I see that that is something else that we should do. We should certainly obey those in authority, and we should pray for those in authority. And I would say that we have a unique opportunity, as few Christians in history have had, to also vote for those in authority. Now, can I point to a verse? Not necessarily, but Romans 13 does seem to imply that those people who have political power are going to be held accountable for the use of that power. Okay? Who ultimately is in power in America? We are. In this next election, we will elect a president and a vice president. We will elect 33 United States senators. 22 that were held by Democrats, 11 held by Republicans this time, 435 members of the House of Representatives. Then when you start looking at races for governor, state senator, state representative, about, in round numbers, 25,000 or more. Now, if you go all the way down to school board and things like that, you get almost up to 30,000 different elections that will be held this year, from president to dog catcher. Pretty amazing, isn't it? That's a lot of political power which we as voters exercise that believers in previous centuries could not possibly imagine, which believers in other countries cannot possibly imagine. And so I think it is important to recognize that we should be thinking about our responsibility to vote. For just a minute, I thought I would digress, since we have a little bit of time, talking about what has been the role of pastors and churches in American history. Because oftentimes when we talk about this, we say, well, okay, you know, maybe we should pray for those in authority, obey those in authority, maybe vote for those in authority. But I think it's important to recognize that historically, Christians felt that it was their responsibility to be salt and light. And when we look at that, we can go all the way back to even before the founding of this country you had what was the first great awakening, Jonathan Edwards, talking about revival that began in his church and was like a flash of lightning. Uh, George Whitfield actually began to preach up and down the eastern seaboard through all of the various colonies and uh, some of what we today uh, consider evangelistic techniques were well, those were actually crafted by George Whitfield. And they were addressing these very important issues and many people believe that the first great awakening was actually instrumental in what later became the American Revolution. Uh, we had all sorts of patriot preachers, and after the American Revolution, John Adams actually wrote this seminal essay in 1818 called The Meaning of the American Revolution. Now, I think it's interesting because John Adams talked about who were the people most responsible for the American Revolution? If I were to go to the University of Hawaii right now and talk to a professor of government, I would think he or she would probably say, well, okay, Samuel Adams. Certainly he was seen in many ways as the father of the American Revolution. Maybe some would say, well, no, the Declaration certainly was important. So that'd be Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin and uh, people like that. Some might say, well, George Washington. But it was interesting, John Adams, uh, listed those men that he thought were most important in the revival of American principles that led to the American Revolution. Now, he might know something. He was pretty close to it. Who was John Adams? Well, he was, first of all, the vice president under George Washington. He later was president himself until later he was defeated after one term by Thomas Jefferson. 
Then he had a son, John Quincy Adams, who also served, the first father of a son who became president. Happened again later on, as we well know. So he was pretty close to it, and he said that two of the most significant individuals that led to the American Revolution were Dr. Mayhew and Dr. Cooper. I could look at the quizzical look on your face to say, who in the world are these people? Reverend Jonathan Mayhew, minister of West Church, he was uh, certainly very instrumental in the Boston area for one very good reason, although I can mention others. But probably one of the most significant was as he wrote a very significant essay. He first preached it, but oftentimes what would happen is after they would preach, then they would put together the transcript from his message, and it was on the issue of civil disobedience. And it was a very important question. Is there ever a time when Christians could disobey the government? After all, the things that King George was doing and the actions he was taking were that sufficient justification for us to engage in a revolution. Today we're going to have a big debate as to whether or not, from a biblical point of view, the American Revolution was justified. But the point is, is that his essay, which was preached in his church and then was reprinted and was passed all through the colonies, was very significant because for the first time, some of the colonists began to say, we don't always have to obey King George if in obeying King George, we are forced to disobey God. Very interesting. One of the issues had to do with the fact that in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts and in Pennsylvania and other places, they tried to outlaw slavery and they were not allowed to do so because slavery was the law of the land from the British Empire. Interesting. Another one was Dr. Samuel Cooper, minister of the Brattle Street Church. Many members of his uh, church actually were involved in a skirmish, which was later called the Battle of Bunker Hill. Matter of fact, if you ever do travel to the United States, uh, the mainland, and go to the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, and you go on the Freedom Trail, you'll actually see some of the evidence of uh, well, actually things that took place uh, at a very important seminal time before the American Revolution. But I thought I'd add one other individual in the story because this is a man by the name of John Peter Gabriel Muhlenberg. He was actually a Lutheran pastor in Virginia, but he also served in the House of Burgesses. If you ever travel to Virginia and you go to Williamsburg, you can actually sit where he sat. And here he was a Lutheran pastor who was also serving in the House of Burgesses. And in one particular situation, he'd hear all the things that had happened, how the British had fired on the Americans and recognized that now we were headed towards war. So he travels from Williamsburg, Virginia, which is sort of in the southeast corner of Virginia, all the way up to the Shenandoah Valley, where his church was in uh, Woodstock, which is in the sort of northwest corner of Virginia. He arrives there Saturday night. So Sunday morning, he now takes the pulpit. Now, they don't have CNN, they don't have internet, nobody's heard anything. And he now stands in the pulpit and begins to preach on Ecclesiastes 3. And when he comes to that point where it's a time for peace and a time for war, now he begins to tell the members of his congregation what has happened in other parts of the colony. And then, at that point, then, he actually steps out of the pulpit. He takes off his vestment. This is an actual picture that is of that. And reveals that he has now become an officer in the Continental Army. 
And that day then, he challenges the men in his church to join him, and 300 men in his church join him. He fights with almost every battle with George Washington all the way to Yorktown and is uh, decorated in some very significant ways and ultimately becomes a major general in the Continental Army. What's so interesting is, at the same time, another um, individual that is his father, Frederick Augustus Muhlenberg, is a pastor, a Lutheran pastor, in Manhattan Island. And we have the correspondence between Frederick Augustus Muhlenberg and John Peter Gabriel Muhlenberg. And Frederick Augustus Muhlenberg says, you don't have a right as a pastor to speak to these issues. You're not supposed to be politically involved. John Peter Gabriel Muhlenberg writes back and says, because I stand for liberty, you can stand in your pulpit. Of course, that doesn't last very long because then the British sail their ships into New York. A battle ensues between those individuals that stepped off of that uh, ship and George Washington. George Washington is able to eventually escape through Manhattan, goes into New Jersey. They come in, the British come in and throw Frederick Augustus Muhlenberg out of his pulpit and he begins to rethink whether or not maybe there's a place for people standing for liberty. After the war, John Peter Gabriel Muhlenberg is elected to Congress, so is his brother Frederick Augustus Muhlenberg, and he becomes the first Speaker of the House of the United States. If you ever go to Washington, D.C., ask them to bring you into the Speaker's chamber. As you walk in, turn around, the picture behind you is a picture of Frederick Augustus Muhlenberg, the first Speaker of the House. If you go to Washington, D.C. and uh, you go to the National Archives, you will see the Declaration of Independence, you will see the Constitution of the United States, and you will see the Bill of Rights. And if you look at the bottom of the Bill of Rights, it's signed by two people, John Adams and Frederick Augustus Muhlenberg. So there's a time in which pastors began to rethink whether or not it was appropriate to speak to these issues. As a matter of fact, when I was at Georgetown University, one of my professors began to do research with other professors at the University of Houston and LSU and others, and they began to conclude that really as they looked at the writings from the founding era, looking at 15,000 different documents, 3,000 quotations, the Bible was quoted 34% of the time. Nothing else was quoted more significantly. I think number two was Montesquieu at like 6% or something like that, and Blackstone at 4%, and Locke at about 4%. But then they went back and recognized that it wasn't just the quotes, but these Bible verses were actually quoted from the sermons of the day. As a pastor would preach on issues like justice and fairness and a various biblical text, those reprinted sermons spread around, and it turns out that as we look at the writings of the founding era, the preaching of the pastors in the 18th century actually were used to construct the United States Constitution. We look at some other aspects as well. The election sermons during the time, there were all sorts of sermons that would oftentimes be given before an election where pastors would not tell them how to vote, but they would give them principles by which to make wise choices in the voting booth. Here's a sermon, by the way, that was delivered before John Hancock and Samuel Adams. A lot of pastors also many times would actually address these issues of disaster, if it was a hurricane or a tornado or something like that, they would be asking the question, what is God trying to teach us through this fire to this flood or this tornado? And so again, I think we can see that oftentimes pastors saw it is very important to address the social issues of the day. And if you look at many of the social ills that were actually addressed, especially during the second Great Awakening, 
Uh, you can see that Christians were involved in the abolition movement to abolish slavery, uh, the suffrage movement to give women the right to vote, uh, child welfare laws and things like that, even in the modern era, the civil rights movement. And so again, the churches have oftentimes seen it as important to address the social issues of the day. But that, of course, leads us to a question. Ever heard the phrase separation of church and state? What about that? Well, I think we have to understand where that idea comes from. And that is that if you look in the Constitution, the phrase separation of church and state is not there. Every once in a while when I speak in a law school, I'll sometimes have a law student say, well, you know, the Constitution prevents a separation of church and state. Okay. And I oftentimes carry a pocket Constitution. I say, can you show me where that is in the Constitution? Because it's not there. The phrase is not there, not even the word separation, church, or state are in the Constitution. But you've heard the phrase a lot of times, haven't you? Well, it comes from Thomas Jefferson. Now, Thomas Jefferson, you know, let's be honest, could not sign the doctrinal statement of this church or any other. Uh, many of the founders weren't necessarily Orthodox Christians. Some were Unitarians and others uh, uh, maybe somewhat enamored with Enlightenment deism. And certainly Thomas Jefferson would fit into that category. And he became the third president and he received a letter from the Danbury Baptists in Connecticut. During that time, they asked some very important questions, so he wrote to them in 1802 in his letter and basically explained why he did not feel that it was right for him as the president to declare days of public prayer and thanksgiving. And so in his letter, and here's actually a copy of that letter that uh, does exist, he argued that the president had no right to actually proclaim a religious holiday, which was different than the idea that George Washington had. And he talked about building a wall of separation between church and state. Well, the phrase was used in the letter. It surfaced one other time in a legal document. But it pretty much just went out of vogue until 1947, when in a very important case, Everson versus Board of Education, Justice Hugo Black pulled it out of obscurity and at that time then argued that there should be a wall of separation between church and state that should be high and impregnable. But the phrase is not in the Constitution. It was simply used by him and for a few years sort of was dormant but then began to be used more and more to begin to change all sorts of decisions about church and state ideas. I think you can go back and actually say, well, what really did James Madison intend when he proposed the First Amendment? And I think you have a pretty good idea because the first draft of the First Amendment said this, that the civil rights of none shall be abridged on account of religious belief or worship, nor shall any national religion be established nor shall the full and equal rights of conscience be in any manner or on any pretext infringed. In other words, he was trying to prevent a national religion. At that time, you had state religions, but he did not want to have a national religion. Later, the First Amendment was simplified to this, that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion nor prohibiting the free exercise thereof. But this phrase, separation church and state, has been used to say, well, Christians can't speak to the moral issues of the day. But historically, that's exactly how they used to do it. And I believe if there isn't an opportunity today for Christians to speak to the moral issues, if Christians aren't the caretakers of values, who are going to be? Certainly, we should address those moral issues. But today, separation church and state says you can't have, you know, Bible reading in the classroom, can't have prayer in the classroom. By 1980, Stone versus Graham, you can't even post the Ten Commandments in a public school. 
Interesting enough, that particular Ten Commandments is still standing in that Kentucky schoolroom. They never did take it down. But the argument from the Supreme Court was is that students might look at the Ten Commandments, the students might believe the Ten Commandments, and the students might obey the Ten Commandments. And we can't have that, right? It just shows you how far we've gone. More recently, they even, the Supreme Court said that uh, we were not so sure you could have the Ten Commandments in a public arena. We even had a case out of the state of Texas that said that you could not have a prayer before a Texas high school football game. We have to have a separation of prayer and player. And the argument from the Supreme Court was is that you cannot have a prayer before a Texas high school football game because a Texas high school football game is not a religious event. They've never been to a Texas high school football game. Finally, just for a few more minutes, but we'll have some questions obviously later uh, this evening to uh, give you a chance to address some of those. How do we apply some of these biblical principles? Let's come back to Romans 1 and then we'll finish off. Here it tells us again that every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those which exist are established by God. Then Paul goes on to say, therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it, that is government, is a minister of God to you for good. For if you do not do what is evil, be afraid, for it, that is government, does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also of conscience sake. For because of this, you should all pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all who is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. First Peter goes on and also gives us the idea to submit ourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king or the one in authority, for to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. This is my attempt to try to help us understand that we're talking about three different institutions and each one of them are God-ordained and we have a responsibility. The first we've already talked about, and that is the government or the state. In the verses I put down there, Romans 13, that we should obey those in authority. 1 Timothy 2, that we should pray for those in authority. The symbol I put down there is a sword because we see in Romans 13 that government does not bear the what? The sword for nothing. And that, I think, implies that the government is the one institution that God has given the use of physical authority. That sword can be used to protect us from foreign invaders. The sword also could be used in terms of execution of justice. And so those are very important aspects. So we have certainly civil authority that we should obey. But then we have a second institution and that is the church. Just as we have civil authority, we also have ecclesiastical or church authority. And I put down 1 Corinthians there because there is a very long series of admonitions by Paul to the church in Corinth about what the church should do and how the church should function. I put down 1 Timothy 3, which are the qualifications for the elder. Just as we are to obey those in civil authority, if you're in a church, you are to obey those in church or ecclesiastical authority. The symbol I put up there is the idea of the staff and the idea of the bishop staff, or that is the church has the moral authority. The church speaks 
against unrighteousness, calls sinners to repentance, is to be the salt and the light. As individuals are to do that, we are to be a positive influence in the society. But just as we have both a civil authority and we have an ecclesiastical authority, we have authority within the family as well. The third God-ordained institution. And I put down Ephesians 5 and 6, which give us passages here about the structure in the family. The symbol I use there is the rod. It's the idea of providing instructional responsibility and authority. And so I think it is important for us as believers to recognize that we do have obedience to various law structures, various institutions that God has ordained. And however you decide to vote this November or this August for your primary, it seems to me that we should be the best examples of citizens. We're going to be doing this conference next week in Maui, and one of the things I'm speaking at there in our Maui conference is on civility. And I think there's a lot of incivility in the political arena right now. If you were to listen to my radio program, you would say, um, you know, even though I may disagree with you sometimes, and even some people call it in very, in very disagreeable ways, I try to be at least a civil individual. I think Christians should be the consummate example of good citizens in society. We should obey those in authority, and God has put us under authority of various individuals. We should be good citizens. And I do believe that we have a responsibility to not only obey those in authority and pray for those in authority, but to vote for those in authority as well. I hope you found Kirby's message informative, but also inspiring. This concludes part two of Kirby's message entitled Election 2012. If you missed any part of this message, log on at evidenceandanswers.org and you can listen to this study and enjoy other great resources right there on the site. Also, the entire series from the 2012 Hawaii Apologetics Conference featuring Dr. Mark Hitchcock, Kirby Anderson, and other fine teachers is also available right there. Pat's ministry with Probe International relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. If you've been blessed by the teachings of Pat and his guests, please support him in prayer and with a financial gift by logging on at evidenceandanswers.org. I hope you'll be with us next week as Pat and his friends present reasons for faith and hope right here on Evidence and Answers. Oh, 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 oh,